I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Which Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hey, witches. Heads up that in this episode, we are going to have a brief conversation about the history of residential schools, about the link between settler colonialism and genocide, and about the discovery of unmarked graves. So heads up, that conversation happens in our Transfiguration class segment, and we'll include the time code for that discussion in the episode description so you can skip it if that is something that you need to do. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And Marcel, I missed you. <gasps> I missed you. Our listeners didn't notice a gap because we backlogged episodes, but you have been away <laughs> doing something. Do you want to tell us what you did while you were away? Yeah, I started a new project. Uh, it's 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 called Cohen. Um, I had a baby. <laughs> He is here in the room with me now, um, and so listeners may hear some baby squeaks as per our MO over the last nearly six years. <laughs> but yeah, I, I had I had a I had a second baby. You had a second baby and he's so cute. Yes, he's very cute. <laughs> he's a little bit he's he's in the pterodactyl phase, so like most of the sounds that he makes sound either like cute little kittens or like fierce shrieking pterodactyl noises. And he's a Leo, so he only has two modes. One is is like super charming and endearing, and the other is like very overdramatic. Yeah, yeah. He's a Leo Gemini rising, and I am a Gemini Leo rising. So me and this baby are going to vibe so hard. <laughs> it's been a, a wild six weeks. <laughs> I'm delighted to meet him, and I am... Thrilled for the return of our signature sound, 
baby coos in the background. (laughs) What about you, Hannah? What have you been up to? Is there anything you want to tell me? It's been six weeks. Yeah, I really want to tell you about our new pin. Ooh. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Marcel has babies and I have Patreon tears. This is the way things work. I just want to... Remind folks up front that we created a new Patreon tier called the Prefix, and that when you sign up at Prefix level, you get access to our exclusive enamel pins. <gasps> we are actively taking recommendations for upcoming enamel pin designs. So if you've got a pin you really want, you can join the Prefix tier and let us know what you're interested in. And also, if you join the Wizarding World Feminist Utopia tier this month, you'll be in time to join us for our next watch along on October 30th, which oh my gosh, film TBD, but it's going to be Halloween themed. Oh, this is so good. I'm so excited. Yeah, it's going to be fun. So check it out. Patreon.com slash witch please, if you want to see all our tears. And by tears, you mean like like levels, not like crying. No, nope. you get the crying for free on the podcast. I've got a lot to catch up on, so why don't we start off by reviewing what we already know in Revision. Fantastic idea, Marcel and Cohen. Thank you for your (laughs) input. Okay, now we can move on. (laughs) Critical theory is a means of looking at the ways power and oppression operate structurally and systemically within society and culture rather than focusing on individual people or individual actions. So at the heart of critical theory is the idea that structures often matter more than individual choices. In our discussion of critical race theory, for example, we discussed racial oppression as a system that has very little to do with people's good or bad feelings. A really key intervention that critical race studies offers is to focus on how racism is systemic and institutionalized. So what that means is that racism is more likely to be embedded in cultural norms, laws, housing policies, budget decisions, zoning, etc., rather than to be articulated overtly as a belief or a principle. Exactly. Plus, since we're going to be talking about archives as systems of knowledge management and bringing up Foucault, we should probably touch on that whole discourse thing. Hey, Marcel, remember discourse? Ooh, it's a discourse. (laughs) (laughs) Chef's kiss. (laughs) So discourse is language that enacts power by generating knowledge. So we've talked about, in the context of Orientalism, how discourse isn't descriptive, but is rather productive of both meaning and power. And being productive... It reminds us that knowledge is not only historically contingent, but also entangled with politics. So we don't objectively know things. We produce knowledge as a sort of political act, often with a purpose. So Orientalism, which was our first example, 
is, according to Edward Said, knowledge that is produced by the West about the East with the purpose of producing and justifying imperial power. And when discourse produces political knowledge, do you know where that knowledge is stored? Is it archives? Yeah, it's absolutely archives. Yep. Yep. (laughs) I did it. (laughs) So before we jump into looking at some examples of archives in Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, one last topic I want us to sort of loop back in, and that is our discussion of print culture, a.k.a. books. Books? I've been gone for so long. (laughs) (laughs) You might recall way back in book two, episode six, we discussed print culture with a focus on the fetishization of the book as an object. Because we thought it was cool that Tom Riddle put his soul in one. I mean, it's pretty punk. (laughs) You know what? It is relatively punk. So we talked about how books have been imbued with this aura of livingness. And we talked about the cultural shift towards people accruing personal libraries as a sign of class status. We also touched briefly on the significance of the library at Hogwarts, how in the early books it seems to be like the sole source of knowledge that the students can access to understand the wizarding world. Mm, Totally. So it's like, where is information? Library, period. Nowhere else. It's only in the library. But in Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix... Our encounters with sources of knowledge and their organizing systems gets a whole lot more complicated. So I'm going to propose a few key sites of the production, organization, and storage of information in this book. So like, where do we see information happening? And maybe Marcel, I'm going to give you three. And maybe Marcel, you want to add another one at the end? We'll see if there's some that I miss. Yeah, I'll, I'll evaluate the three that you propose, <laughs> and then we'll see. <laughs> so maybe the most obviously, we've got the Department of Mysteries, which is full of all kinds of, like, bonkers sites of knowledge production, including <laughs> a tank of brains. I mean, what a better metaphor for knowledge production than <laughs> a tank really of brains. A literal, a literal tank full of brains. But also, I think most importantly, the Hall of Prophecy, which is the closest thing we get in this book to, like, a real archive. Like, it is a physical room that is, you know, full of shelves, and those shelves are full of objects that are meant to hold historical knowledge that has been deemed significant. But we've got a few other sort of sites of knowledge production and organization. And the second one, I think is interesting to think of as an archive is the body of laws that we encounter throughout the books, largely in the form of Umbridge's educational decrees. Her first educational decree is number 21, which is the one that says if Hogwarts can't find a suitable teacher that the ministry gets to appoint a teacher in their stead. Mm -hmm. But that means that there's 20 other educational decrees that we don't know about (laughs) that have been silently 
shaping what happens at Hogwarts. We don't even know when those were introduced. Like, maybe the first one was a thousand years ago? It absolutely could be. Like, the first educational decree could be the Hogwarts founders deciding to create four different houses. Like, we don't know. I did do some, like, fan wiki searching, and I could not find any evidence of any Pottermore nonsense documenting (laughs) the first 20 educational decrees. It's only a matter of time, though, let's be real. It's only a matter of time. You're you're absolutely right. But we do hear about a few other laws. There's the decree for the reasonable restriction of underage sorcery. Mm -hmm. That could be one of the educational decrees. I don't know. They don't say. And we also hear about the Wizengamot Charter of Rights at Harry's disciplinary hearing. So we've got a sense that there is a body of legal documents that are actively shaping what happens in the wizarding world and that are also shifting actively as the political landscape of the wizarding world shifts. Mm-hmm. On previous readings and in previous books, the name of the decree just sort of slid slid by me and I didn't really think about it too much. But we can sort of put pressure on the word reasonable in two different ways. Like one is that there's a a reasonable restriction. So in certain cases, you can use magic, but then we can also read it as in, no, this is a reasonable restriction. There is no questioning this decree because this decree is perfectly and entirely reasonable. Yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely self-justifying. Like it includes in the language of the name, a insistence that it is almost a natural law, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But it's not. But it's not. (laughs) And then the third one that I want to point at, which might be more contentious, but that I think is so interesting to think about in the context of archives, is human memories, which in this book are presented as legible texts that can be stored external from the human who remembers them, that are fully legible and readable by other people, such that they could constitute an archive, except insofar as they are not organized as an archive. Yeah, they're not collected. They're not collected, which is a really interesting question why there is no collection or preservation of these memories, which we know can be taken out, can be stored, because we see Dumbledore in later books storing them, like creating a collection of them that become his primary sources in trying to research the question of what the Deathly Hallows are. Like, they have archival potential. And so I think particularly around the prophecy that gets destroyed in the Department of Mysteries, but then recovered via Dumbledore's memory of it, I think there's an invitation to be like, cool, there are these two parallel sources of information, and one of them is preserved and archived and ordered and protected, and the other one is not. So we'll tackle this after we uh, get some theory. But... Are there any other sort of sites of knowledge production and organization and storage you want to point at? 
I think that you've absolutely zeroed in on probably the three biggest and most significant sites of knowledge production. I'm not entirely sure about this one that I want to add because I'm having a little bit of trouble articulating how it is that I think about it as a sort of site of knowledge production, but you, Hannah, are very good at putting into words the like weird mush that comes out of my mouth. So I'm going <laughs> to propose it to you and then <laughs> you tell me what you think, okay? <laughs> okay. Okay. So I was thinking about the portraits, particularly the portraits in the headmaster's office, the portraits of the previous Hogwarts headmasters. So we'll come to learn in the sixth book that the portraits, they're not actually sentient. Like at, the, at this point in book five, they seem like they're people. They have like ideas and plans and things. Um, and so we'll learn in the next book that that's not actually the case. But what we do come to understand in Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix is that the portraits of the Hogwarts headmasters are, and I quote, honor bound to give service to the present headmaster, end quote. So to me, this suggests that the function of the portraits is to provide the headmaster with a kind of historical record or to provide counsel based on precedence, but like beyond carrying messages from one portrait to another or between portraits that are located in different places, they don't actually provide any new information. So in that sense, we can think of them as being an archive. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I think they're an institutional archive. Like they're a Hogwarts institutional archive that documents the history of the institution from the perspective of things headmasters have done and know. And that can be consulted by the current person in that role. And that thus, as a sort of body of knowledge and precedent, shape the kinds of decisions that the person currently in the role of headmaster can do. And actively provide him with power, which, as we are going to see, is one of the functions of archives. So I think it's a great addition. Thanks, Hannah. That means so much. <laughs> All right. Are we ready to find out a little bit more about the relationship between archives and power? Oh, I am jazzed. Let's do it. <laughs> Now that we've refreshed our memories, it's time to learn something new in Transfiguration class. And today, Marcel, we're going to be learning about critical archival studies. I hope you're excited. I am super excited. I would love to start this conversation off by telling you a little bit about my own experience of archives. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you are a scholar who works in archives. <laughs> that still feels weird. <laughs> That's true. And yet, and yet it's true. So I have a few nuggets that I would like to share. One of them is that archival research is not linear. It is an ongoing process of piecing together information, cross-referencing what, if anything, previous researchers have found and recorded and stated. My own experience working in archives was as much about understanding how texts come to be valued as it was about what the texts themselves have to say. It's a very meta kind of 
research method? <laughs> yeah, because you have to be aware of the fact that what you find in the archive is not an objective or neutral or total representation of history, that it's as much a representation of the very process of archiving as it is of the history you're seeking to understand. So you've got to be thinking both about what you find there and how it got there and what didn't make it there. Absolutely. So normally I like to draw on the metaphor of detective work when I talk about archival research because, you know, you, especially if you're a grad student, you are this like jaded and broke private eye in a shitty office with bad fluorescent lighting. (laughs) (laughs) And then someone draws your attention to a sexy mystery that you just can't ignore. (laughs) And you're drinking too much and you're broke. Yeah, you are drinking too much and you've started smoking for some reason, even though like smoking hasn't (laughs) been cool for 30 years. But I think we can also think about archival research along the lines of the paleontologist who is out in the field dusting off bones in the hopes of fitting them together to make a dinosaur. (laughs) (laughs) I love this. If you're really lucky, the bones might even tell you something that you didn't already know, like the fact that, oh, it turns out that Tyrannosaurus rexes had wings. (laughs) We didn't know. (laughs) But they do. Or if you do a bad job, you put the wrong head on the wrong body and then invent a dinosaur that's not real. Exactly. And then for years, people are like, no, that's definitely a dinosaur. Like this really important paleontologist like discovered that dinosaur. And then finally, they're like, no, that was a mistake. (laughs) My favorite news in paleontology... Welcome to Jurassic Park. Is when people come out with new discoveries, right? They'll be like, oh, we figured out this thing about this dinosaur. We found this new species of dinosaur that we didn't know about before. And those fossils were just in the basement of a museum the whole time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like they were there. The problem wasn't an absence of the evidence. The problem was that nobody had figured out how to read the evidence yet, which is exactly the relationship we have to a lot of archives. It's like, it's not like it's not there. People aren't quote unquote discovering things in the archives. Mm -hmm. They're figuring out how to read what they have and what they don't have more effectively. Absolutely. So like, ultimately, if we're thinking about archives, we can't really talk about archives without also like theorizing what gets collected and who collects it and why they collect it, plus all of these elements of chance that will impact, you know, who happens to notice what relationship one thing has with another. Or even the fact that like one of my archives contained a box of magazines that were literally stored in a shed for like, I don't know, 60 years. And so (laughs) that archive wouldn't exist if there had been a flood and that box of magazines had just been destroyed, right? So, so much of this stuff that we have access to when we're doing archival research is entirely up to chance and politics. Somebody happened to be there, happened to decide to save it. So, lucky for us, as we're trying to understand, you know, how an archival collection got put together in the first place, what is saved and what is not, what's lost and how we figure out what's lost, (laughs) because it's really hard to 
figure out what's not there. <laughs> oh, totally. There's this fascinating body of scholarship that theorizes the nature of the archive and the practices of archival collection. And that field of scholarship draws on a lot of the concepts we've already explored through the podcast. So we're building on established knowledge here. You probably won't be surprised to hear that critical archive studies is concerned with archives as tools for both oppression and liberation, right? Because critical studies is thinking about power and systems and the relation between systems and power. That phrasing, quote, archives serve as tools for both oppression and liberation, end quote, comes from this very helpful piece called Critical Archival Studies, an introduction. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Does exactly what it says on the tin. Just introduces you to Critical Archive Studies. <laughs> that piece is by Michelle Caswell, Ricardo Punzalan, and T.K. Sangland. And in it, they justify the incorporation of critical theory into archival studies, which is not something you and I need justified because we love incorporating critical theory into everything. But... They recognize that archival studies itself, which is sometimes called archival science, is a field that's often more concerned with the practical challenges of, like, managing collections than with the political implications of, like, what is gathered and how. So in that introduction, they argue that critical theory is really crucial for understanding how power permeates archives and that archives are never neutral, and that they're often at the heart of political struggles. Yeah, this makes perfect sense. There are so many historical examples of how archives function politically to produce both power and knowledge. Or, as French theorist Michel Foucault puts it, power knowledge. Power knowledge! I love a portmanteau. It's such a good portmanteau. He just put the words together with the dash. Power knowledge. So colonial governments have been characterized by layers of bureaucracy that have produced volumes of discourses about the colonized peoples. Similarly, fascist and totalitarian governments are often deeply concerned with the production of records. Of course... The relationship between power and archives is not just about the production of knowledge, but, as we've mentioned, also about exclusion. So we want to think about what is not saved, what is not counted, and why. Let me give you an example that hits pretty close to home. So we're recording this episode on October 1st, which is the day after Canada's first recognized National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. The example that I want to talk about is one of the ways that dominant archives produce knowledge about the other, but don't contain knowledge by the other. So over the past few months, literally thousands of unmarked children's graves have been uncovered at former residential school sites across Canada. The institutions where these graves were found deliberately concealed the murders of thousands of children. At least six and a half thousand. And deliberately is the right word because those graves were deliberately unmarked and those deaths were deliberately undocumented. Exactly. Not only were records kept from these children's parents and their communities, but also from the broader public. And further, the institutions denied the testimonies of residential school survivors 
and in so doing was working in tandem with the federal government to convince us as settlers that colonialism is not genocide. Until recently, I think that the sort of progressive-ish mainstream narrative could be summed up as, yeah, residential schools were bad, but it was a long time ago and they meant well. Which now, now that we are uncovering this evidence, we can see is an absolute lie. We can see how the official archives of both the schools and the Canadian government have situated residential school survivors as objects of history rather than subjects of history. And it's not only excluded, but completely undermined any counter histories that could resist the mainstream view of Canadian history as one of benign colonization, if such a thing can be said to exist. Yeah. I mean, Canada's brand is well-intentioned genocide, 100%. And I say that not glibly, like it is part of how of how that violence gets justified here. And it's a reminder, again, of how important the question of what knowledge is considered legitimate is when we think about not only understanding the past, but also understanding the present moment. Because this idea that the unmarked graves were a revelation, it's only a revelation for anybody who did not believe survivor testimonies. And so for, you know, indigenous folks I know, they're like, this is not a shock. We have known this the whole time. The difference is that they have set about identifying the graves so that they can provide evidence that the colonial government and that settlers can no longer ignore because it's information, forensic information, scientific information, that we recognize as legitimate. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So these are questions that we see playing out right now. There are legal actions in place where the government is literally trying to prevent survivors from accessing the archival documents of residential schools. There are stories that, like, churches are destroying documentation. Like, this is playing out in the present moment around, like, literal physical documents of an, an ongoing atrocity. So archives, from the perspective of critical theorists, can sometimes be, you know, that literal physical place where a bunch of stuff is. Like, I'm going to go and visit the archive but it can also be the sort of larger conceptual architecture of knowledge itself, like what is knowable to us, mm -hmm. right? So critical archival studies helps us think about why it is that survivor testimony is not legitimate, but forensic evidence is from the perspective of settler colonial understanding of the truth. So according to Foucault, archives are how we organize discourse. So he's got this whole book about it called The Archaeology of Knowledge, which is really annoying to read. And Marcel's metaphor of a paleontologist is more fun. But he does have this useful argument where he describes the archive as, quote, the law of what can be said, the system that governs the appearance of statements as unique events, end quote. So when Foucault says what can be said. Should we interpret that literally, or is it more like what can be believed? 
because like people can people can say things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he means what can be said in terms of discourse. So discourse again in the sense of like knowledge that produces power. So what can be articulated or what can be understood? What is conceivable, really? So if we think about the archive as the law of what can be said, we can think about of course like why would a sur- why would survivor testimony not constitute a legitimate archive, right? It falls outside of the law of what can be said according to this particular power structure. Mm-hmm. And we can also think about, like, the Hall of Prophecy as literally a system that organizes statements as unique events. So Foucault continues, just a touch, just a titch more Foucault. Quote, But the archive is also that which determines that all these things said do not accumulate endlessly in an amorphous mass, but they are grouped together in distinct figures composed together in accordance with multiple relations, end quote. So what's important there is that archives don't just store knowledge, they create a set of relations that organize knowledge. So for Foucault, lots of stuff is an archive. Think about the basic idea that, like, libraries and archives are arranged by subject matter, and that at some point, somebody makes the decision to say, Indigenous history goes in anthropology, not in history. Gotcha. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right? That the decisions we make about how to organize knowledge are political decisions. Right. But we get so used to them that until we question them, they just seem natural. They seem natural and neutral. Absolutely. So this applies for Foucault, not just in a literal physical archive, but also it's the architecture of all of our systems of knowledge. So we are always encountering information, making decisions about what fits into our worldview and what doesn't, storing it in relation to other things, and thus sort of producing for ourselves and in relationship with other people these kinds of, like, architectures of what we know. Yeah, so that being said, archivists and librarians can get a little cross sometimes at how theorists treat archives, you know, theoretically, (laughs) because they are real material things and treating them so theoretically can erase the very real labor that is involved in collecting, storing, organizing, and preserving historical records because that stuff isn't, it doesn't preserve itself. There's a lot of time and energy. So that's why theoretical conversations about how knowledge is organized should always be married with material conversations about how knowledge is produced and circulated and preserved. And this is probably why Madame Pince is so cross all the time. Oh. <laughs> so before we move on to look at the actual practical archives we encounter in the Order of the Phoenix, I want to introduce one last theorist. Marcel, it's time for us to talk about Jacques Derrida. So specifically because Derrida is really interested in the relationship between the archive and law. Blah, 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 blah. I'm glad you're talking about Derrida, because I have never successfully read more than a page of Derrida. (laughs) Everyone, Derrida is another French guy who's really hard to understand. He did love cats, though. That's a fun thing about him. So he has this whole book 
about archives. It's absolutely bonkers. It's called Archive Fever. It will make you feel like you have an archive fever. (laughs) But in it, he's talking about, you know, his own interpretation of the archive. And he does this, like, interesting etymological interpretation where he's like, okay, where does the word archive come from? And he links it back to the Greek word arche, which means commandment or authority or like the giving of orders. And archon, which is the guys who give the orders, who get to interpret the laws and issue the commandments. And they get to do that from their home, which is the archaeon, which is also where official documents are filed to be legitimized and interpreted. So why this matters is less because it's interesting to think about, like, how Greek people interpreted laws, and more because for Derrida, the archive becomes a site of power itself. So it's an institution where power is housed along with the people who have the power to interpret, to, like, offer the official interpretations of official documents. So it's like the archive isn't just the site of the text that you can then read. It's like it's the site of the texts and their readings. Okay, so to go back to the example of the box of magazines in the shed, the shed was not an archive. The shed is a shed. But when the box of magazines is relocated from the shed and into Library and Archives Canada in Ottawa, which is a federally run institution that produces knowledge about Canada and Canadian history, that's an archive. Yes, 100%. And in part, it's an archive because somebody has already begun interpreting it as significant and deciding where to put it and how to categorize it in relationship to other things. And the person who's made that decision is somebody who has been, like, imbued with institutional power that gives them the right to interpret. So for Foucault, the archive is what can be said, what can be known. For Derrida, the archive is a physical site of power, and specifically power over the interpretation of texts. And it is absolutely killing me not to be able to talk about Umbridge right now, so can we please go on to the next segment? Let's go. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hannah, you are as eager as Hermione to put what you know into action. So you know what? It's time for owls. Let's do it. Thank goodness. Okay. I know that we're going to talk about a few different archives, but I really want to start with Umbridge as an archon. Because as I was going back to Derrida and his definition of the archive, I was like, Yes, this is such a good description of what Umbridge is doing at Hogwarts. So what is important about Umbridge is 
not only that she is producing these new decrees, actively producing a new archive that is, you know, the site of power, but that she is also more generally claiming the right to interpret all of the texts and all of the laws and all of the commandments that shape what is possible at Hogwarts. So there's her decrees, which she's not only enacting, but also constantly interpreting. The strongest glimpse of that comes in the only moment when somebody opposes her interpretation. That's often a good way to tell interpretation is happening, is when somebody opposes your interpretation. And it's when she tries to claim the right to appoint the new divination instructor. And she says, you're not allowed to appoint Forenzi, educational decree number 21, blah, blah, blah. And Dumbledore says, nope, educational decree number one, number 21 says that the ministry can appoint somebody if I can't find someone and I have found someone. And then they have to kind of have this back and forth over, you know, it's if you can find somebody appropriate. Okay, what does appropriate mean? So right away, we get this clear evidence that Umbridge is engaged not just in producing new sets of knowledge, but in claiming the right to interpret how that knowledge, knowledge power, is enacted in Hogwarts. Yeah, that's so true. And it's not just written texts. She's also interpreting events and organizations that occur at Hogwarts. So the scene in Dumbledore's office with Marietta, who has the word sneak written across her face, and Harry, and the back and forth about whether or not they have been doing anything that is prohibited by having their clandestine (laughs) defense against the dark arts group. And the fact that it is Dumbledore's army, not Potter's army. So what we see in that scene is a kind of battle over who has the most compelling interpretation of both her decrees and their application to the things, the, 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 the real live things that are happening on the Hogwarts campus. Yep. And Umber is just constantly trying to establish her power by establishing that she is the one who gets to interpret the laws. And Dumbledore most effectively pushes back against her, not through the fact that he's a better wizard, but through the fact that he's actually better at interpreting the text than she is. So in that same scene, he's like, but when did that educational decree come into action? Right. In exactly the same way we see him in Harry's disciplinary hearing, where Dumbledore is pushing back against the minister, not in terms of insisting on different rules, but in terms of claiming the right to be the person who interprets the rules. So that, like, the production and and interpretation of texts becomes one of the primary sites through which the battle for power between Dumbledore and the ministry is enacted. And in that context of Umbridge as a person who is using texts to 
enact power and using the right of interpretation to enact power, it made me think of like, in part, what she's restricting. So, you know, she she makes the students use this terrible book and she only lets them read and she doesn't let them ask questions and she doesn't let them practice the spells. Another site of saying, I am the one who has the authority to interpret text. You do not. You are not allowed to think critically. You are not allowed to try to turn theory into action. So she restricts that. But also the fact that her punishment of Harry is literally forcing him to write her interpretation of him onto his body is such a literal enactment of exactly that claim, that she is the one who gets to interpret what is true and what is a lie. Mm-hmm. By being the the archon, she takes control over reality itself. Ooh, that's bleak. It's so bleak. This read-through of this book, I was like, holy shit, they are gaslighting the hell out of this kid. <laughs> Like, no wonder he's so angry. Yeah. Nobody treats him well in this book. Mm-mm. Truly wild. Truly wild. Okay, you've got me convinced of Umbridge as Archon. So now let's talk about the Hall of Prophecy as Archeon. Yeah. I mean, one of many Archeons, but falls into this larger theme where this book is a battle over access to knowledge and right to interpretation. It's playing out all over the place. It's playing out in Umbridge and her educational decrees. It's playing out in the way that Harry is getting represented in the Daily Prophet. It's playing out over the way that Voldemort figures out that Harry can, like, see into his mind and uses that to distort Harry's sense of reality. Like, it's playing out all over the place. And one of the major places it plays out is the fact that Voldemort is obsessed with this weapon. And it turns out that that weapon is the most powerful thing that there is. Power knowledge. I have to admit, I still don't totally understand why Voldemort wants the prophecy. The problem is we find out that somebody overheard Wormtail, maybe. Was it Wormtail? Overheard the first half of the prophecy when it was originally? It was Snape. Because he didn't know that it was about Lily. Of course he didn't know it was about Lily. Well, it wasn't necessarily about Lily is the thing. Could have been about Alice. Could have been about Alice Longbottom. So Snape overheard the first half and delivered that incomplete knowledge to Voldemort. Based on that incomplete knowledge, Voldemort made a decision. He interpreted that knowledge like the good Archon he is. And... Based on that knowledge, he acted on it by killing Harry's parents and then attempting to kill Harry himself. That backfired on him so colossally that he almost died. And so he has become convinced that accessing the complete prophecy will explain to him what information he missed out and allow him to make a better interpretation. 
So it's like he he is enacting his power based on his capacity to interpret this prophecy, and he needs to do some archival research. <laughs> this is incredible. This is such a great example of how you can have read a text a hundred times and think you understand as much as you can from it, and just a soupçon of critical theory of some kind or another. (laughs) And all of a sudden, things make sense in ways that they didn't before. I know. I feel like thinking about archival theory is tying a lot of stuff in this book together for me in a way that it wasn't tied together for me previously. And part of it is that connection, like why Voldemort is so obsessed with getting into the Hall of Prophecy But then part of it is also the relationship between what's stored in the Hall of Prophecy and what is stored in human memories, which is really significant foreshadowing in this book for the even deeper role that archival research is going to play in the next book. Like, we want to talk about people being, like, paleontologists. Like, Dumbledore is paleontologizing the heck out of Horcruxes in the next book. I absolutely cannot wait to return to the idea of critical archive studies in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. That one is going to be so exciting. It's so exciting. And God, books, books, and, like, archival unique instances of texts are going to play such an important role, but we're not there yet. We have to talk, have to talk about the Hall of Prophecies. Why is the ministry saving prophecies? How do the prophecies get turned into physical objects? Who (laughs) stores them? Why can they only be picked up by some people? Why are they so breakable? Why, when you break them, does the information come out of them and then disappear? What the heck is happening in this archive? These are all great questions, and this book provides no answers. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely none, which is a good reminder of why it can be helpful instead of trying to piece together the bonkers world building of these books. It can be sometimes be more productive to just be like, okay, but what does this like tell us more generally about like what's going on in terms of the pursuit of knowledge? So in this context, what I'm really interested in is not so much the (laughs) bonkers organizational strategies of the Hall of Prophecy, but the relationship between the Hall of Prophecy as this, like, stable institutional site of locked away precious knowledge preserved in glass whatever, and you have to go through a thousand doors that spin wildly to enter it. Like, just bonkers what is happening in the Department of Mysteries, truly. But the relationship between that site and the site of knowledge that is the memories that can be pulled out and put in the pensive. And there's something interesting happening there about, like, institutional knowledge versus non-institutional knowledge, official history versus unofficial history, 
document versus testimony, something about how it's like, okay, here is stuff that the government has chosen to preserve and in the act of choosing to preserve it, have rendered it an archive. And so that is where Voldemort goes to find stuff out, right? He goes to the archive because that is the official site of knowledge power, knowledge and power, knowledge power. But meanwhile, that knowledge also exists elsewhere, but not in a form that he can recognize or locate or access in a form that's almost sort of like a counter archive. I'm so curious. I wonder if it I wonder if it is a matter of access because he would have to get the memory from either Dumbledore or perhaps Trelawney and they're both protected Dumbledore being Dumbledore and then Trelawney by being protected at Hogwarts, right? And Dumbledore won't let her be thrown out. I mean, I think we can think of Dumbledore as also an archon. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, like, Hogwarts is his archaeon. And so he preserves around him the things that he needs in order to do his important work of interpretation So Dumbledore seems to be creating this archive around him that in part is about actually gathering and keeping close to him the humans who have the memories that he wants to access, wants to be able to interpret, but also wants to keep out of the hands of Voldemort and other people who could misuse them. I mean, which is why he makes Slughorn. It's why he hires Slughorn. He basically uses hiring as a form of archival curation. Yeah, it's a real multimedia (laughs) archive. It's like, it involves humans. It involves texts. It involves... Portraits. Portraits. (laughs) Yeah, like his Shirk Insight grant is really going the extra mile. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And so we see him using these memories as a way to find and interpret information and and that he is able to interpret the prophecy differently because he always claims the right to the interpretation of texts and his interpretation is often the one that we as readers are encouraged to take as correct. And so in this case, right, we have his interpretation of the prophecy and his recognition, his sophisticated interpretation of the prophecy as having been open-ended and Voldemort having turned it into discourse, essentially, into, into knowledge that actually has power and the ability to do things through his decision to interpret it in a particular way, which is also an argument about archives, by the way. We will also find out later that the interpretation that we think we have from Dumbledore isn't even the complete Dumbledore interpretation. There's more. Dumbledore is doing other interpreting and is restricting his knowledge, his reading from Harry as part of his ongoing attempt to control the narrative by controlling the circulation of knowledge. And this brings me to my final question for you, Marcel which is, in so many ways, 
these physical memories that can be pulled out and placed in a pensive and looked at are treated narratively as a kind of counter-archive, an alternative archive, a less institutionally official archive as compared to the, the prophecies, which are in these orbs in, a, in the Ministry of Magic. But they also seem to be the most totally objective, totally fact-based, totally unneeding of interpretation. Like, they're treated like documentary films if you had never studied documentary films and so thought that the camera was objective rather than subjective. They're treated like just pure documentary to the extent that when you go into somebody else's memory, you see it from outside of them. Like, why would somebody's memory contain what that person looked like from the outside? You know, I'm trying to imagine what the magic would be if we think about, like, the process of extracting the memory and turning it into something objective. Because we know that memories are not objective. They are inherently subjective. People, we we misremember our own major life experiences all the time. And so I'm wondering, like, okay, so you remove the memory. Is the thing that you remove like a recording? And so you take the recording out and you have, by taking the recording out, you have removed it from interpretation. And so when you put it in the pensive, it doesn't necessarily allow you to look at it objectively, but perhaps with like greater context and therefore greater accuracy. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like in this version of how memories are being conceived of that we have a security camera in our heads that is constantly recording a, like, objective visual document of everything that's happening around us that can be removed and looked at from the outside and then interpreted by people. You know, it does still need to be interpreted. Like, what we see is Harry doing some interpreting of that memory. But the idea that somewhere there is information that is complete and that the task is to curate it, gather it, preserve it, keep it safe from people who might misuse it, even as we see in the Half-Blood Prince, be good enough as a archivist that you recognize when something's been tampered with and some of the original pages are missing and seek to restore it to its original version, that we see Dumbledore doing this kind of archival activity and a little bit sort of teaching Harry how to do it as well. Like a little, though for the most part, Dumbledore is more likely to just treat everybody around him as archival evidence than as a human. <laughs> but it holds out a alluring possibility of a version of the world that is fully knowable, that is transparently knowable. And that is transparently knowable through magic. 
Like, here is this thing that we're being offered is this possibility that magic might be so powerful that the things that we can't know become knowable. And that is a a possibility that's being held out to us time and time again in these books, right? The like, what you see in the mirror of Erised, what you see in the pensive, what you see in moving portraits, right? Even ghosts, which, which Harry initially interprets as being identical to the person who is lost until Nearly Headless Nick says, like, no, no, we are not the same as the person who is gone. That we're held out again and again this tantalizing promise of the archive as completable, as so total that it could become its own reality. And then we're reminded again and again that that's impossible, that representation is never the same as reality, that that memory might seem objective and complete, but it is not, that it might feel like it's giving you full access, but it's never giving you full access, and that you always have to interpret it. Hannah, this is very beautiful. This is like a very moving tribute to the (laughs) beauty that is the imperfection of archives. The incompletion that is archives. The beautiful and inherent incompleteness of archives. Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to notsorryworks.com or, of course, wherever podcasts are found. If you want to hang out with us more, we're on Twitter and Instagram at OhWitchPlease. Witch Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to Not Sorry for having us and to our team player of a producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. Thanks, Coach. If you're into the podcast, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts. At the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who left us a five-star review. So you've got to review us if you want to hear me desperately cling to my sanity as I attempt to interpret a string of letters that you are teasing me with. (laughs) For example, thanks this week to Misty... Nico665, Winter underscore Light, Casey Raykowski, Jane Austen Fan 1990, Noel McDonald, Rachie Reykjavik, Orange Smiling, <laughs> We Penerved Vault, We Penerved Walt, Pick Pack Pock, or possibly pick pack POC. Feelings Witch, Lemon Pie a la Quebecoise, Kitty JH, Lena Harjadal, Zat922, and Avani G. Thanks, you guys. <laughs> Great work, Marcel. Woo! And special thanks to all of our wonderful Patreon supporters for making this show possible. We literally wouldn't do it without you. This is true. (laughs) (laughs) 
We didn't. <laughs> we didn't do it without you. And if you went away, we would stop immediately. <laughs> If you want to be part of making this show happen, you can head over to patreon.com slash ohwitchplease and check out all of our exciting perks. <laughs> we'll be back next episode to continue our discussion of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. But until then, later, witches.